This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome in to the Autzen Audibles podcast. Matt Bream, Eric Scopel, Jared Mack on this show today, Friday. A uh, little late start than normal, but hey, we're here. The live stream's on. We've got people on the show. Uh, we're going to do a mailbag, and then we're going to open up the stream to your questions uh, surrounding probably Oregon football, probably Oregon recruiting, and who knows where else the stream could go. Yeah, no, that's that'll be the plan. Kind of a traditional Monday show on a Friday. Kind of had got our wires mixed up this week a little bit. I think going forward, we'll, we'll shoot for doing more Monday mailbags, but Friday doesn't hurt either. At least you guys get your mailbag. First question from at JT Bobo 13 with the transfer portal additions. Do we have a good feeling about the off season or do we think there is more to do after spring hashtag Otson audibles? Um, <clears throat> I thought this was just a good kind of baseline question. <clears throat> I don't know. I'm sure if we've really mm-hmm. gone into detail, just kind of evaluating the totality of what Oregon has done to this point. Um, and, and to that point, do we feel good about the offseason? Yeah, I think Oregon has had a really strong offseason. We just had Chris Hummer, yep. uh, 24-7 Sports Transfer Portal kind of analyst on our podcast on Wednesday. Go check that out if you missed it. And, and he was really high on the additions Oregon had made, and that was prior to, to Sheem Johnson being added from Ole Miss, which I think is, and we haven't talked about it on a podcast, I think a really significant addition. I mean, how many times, Jared and, and Matt, have we talked about, man, who's going to be the nickel? Are they going to move Jamal Hill back? Are they going to, you know, is Kamari Terrell or J.J. Greenfield, some kind of lesser name ready to emerge? Well, they don't have to have those conversations anymore because Johnson is a prototypical nickel safety. So he, he's going to, I'm pretty confident, fill that spot that Bennett Williams uh, left with his departure. Um, so I think they've they've plugged all the pretty much all the holes um, that are on the roster, with the exception of tight end. And I guess that would be where I would go to kind of the follow up part of: Do they think there's more to do after spring ball? Some of that's going to be dependent upon Oregon and who they lose. Um, you know, they obviously have to get under the eighty or get to eighty five or, or or fewer. And I think the count is is it ninety one today, Matt? Is that where we're at? Yeah. Ninety one scholarships. So there's some work to do from a, you know, cutting. I, I'm trying to. What's the right term? How do we want to frame this in terms of just? Yeah, it's not cutting. I know. Um, I know. It's it's not, and it's and that sounds players cool. players leaving the program, turning over the roster. Yeah, they've got they've more they have more roster turnover. That's right. Good point, Matt. That's a good way of putting it. There's there's more roster roster turnover to be done without question, um, but I think just the, to me the one obvious spot is is tight end where you have three scholarships right now you do have a five-star recruit uh in in nichols harbor on campus i believe he's already arrived for his official visit this weekend they might snag him that Mm -hmm. might change kind of the math on this but i i probably am coming around to jared's opinion a little more of just like it just seems like you probably need to find somebody in the portal just to kind of solidify that group even even if you don't even if you do land harbor so um, I, I think that's the one big spot I look at. I think from a numbers perspective, 
it's just hard to argue to add too many more players on defense with with just the glut you have at a couple spots. But if a player is good enough, you take them. And I assume Oregon will kind of go into that, you know, the, the, the May transfer portal window thinking, hey, there's a guy who's really good here. We're going to we're gonna make a move. We're going to pounce. We're not going to hold back mm-hmm. just because we're at so-and-so scholarships. So, um, but I think it'll be really fascinating to see what Oregon's approach is in terms of how they get down to 85 and then who they approach after spring. Overall, uh, to answer, do we have a good feeling about the offseason, quote-unquote? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think Oregon went into this offseason basically knowing who is going to leave the program in terms of the NFL draft and early entrance um, and have a general idea of who was going to leave the program via the transfer portal. Um, we had a list of, what, like 20, 21 guys that we had originally for our transfer portal list. Yeah, um, about that. I, I think there's maybe two or three pre-written articles that we haven't used yet. Um, so I would imagine the, the staff had a similar idea of what uh, of who they expected to leave. Um, and for the guys that they brought on, uh, like Eric mentioned, they fill all the holes that are necessary. You know, they needed depth of safety. They needed the cornerback to replace Christian Gonzalez. They needed linebackers, obviously. Um, and they've hit a lot of those, those needs. And um, Tyshim Johnson, I share Eric's opinion with. I mentioned this on the podcast multiple times before about how he was just a true nickel safety or a nickel corner, whatever you'd like to call it. Um, plays inside the box a lot more than a normal free safety would or a normal safety would. Um, and that's huge because we saw last year that Bennett Williams was Oregon's nickel nickel safety, and he was good at times and not great at other times. And I'm not saying Tysheem Johnson is going to be the best nickel safety of all time, but um, you know he finished last year with 78 tackles, four tackles for loss, two or three passes defended. I can't remember. Um, all those stats are more than any safety on on Oregon's roster. Uh, the 78 tackles is more than anybody on Oregon's roster. And he did this all in the in the SEC at Ole Miss, playing for Lane Kiffin, and throughout most of the season, the top twenty five, a top twenty team in the country. Um, I really like all of the transfer portal additions. In terms of if there's going to be any more after spring ball, we'll have to find out. We'll have to wait and see. Like Eric said, obviously they have to get to eighty five or under. That's a given. So yeah, there's probably going to be more transfer portal additions um, via subtractions for Oregon's roster. But there's also going to be a lot of competition. This is the whole point of having 92 or 91 guys on your scholarship chart is so that you can tell which guys aren't going to be playing. And either you do that vocally and say, hey, fella, you're not going to be playing. Or B, um, the competition shows them that they are not going to be playing and they need to go find another school. That's the whole part of having that many guys on the roster. Um, And I would expect there to be more transfers out from Oregon's roster after spring ball. And I would expect there to be more transfers in because you never know who exactly you're going to lose. Um, and you never know who's going to hit the transfer portal. Um, I would think Oregon would be a major player for any any position of, of need, obviously, in the transfer portal. And then if there's a big-name guy, I would expect them to go out and, and at least try. Go fish. See if you can catch a line. And if you do, take them in and say, all right, guys, this is X. He's going to be in your, your, your position group room, good luck. Um, I, I just think that that's going to be the mentality here with Dan and company for a long time. I think you look at this recruiting class and, and you say that they've got the ninth best transfer class in the country. They've got the 10th best overall class in the country from a 
recruiting and transfer perspective. And I, I think you feel positive about the roster turnover. They've improved the depth uh, at corner, at safety. Um, I, I don't know, like Jared said, I don't know if it's going to be significantly better, but you feel like you have more options now. And that was maybe one of the issues that we had with the defense last season was, you know, at corner, you had, you had four guys, essentially. And you couldn't rotate anybody else in to try something else. Uh, at safety, you had, you know, just a couple of guys that played those position groups. Um, it's very similar to what, like, Oregon basketball on the men's side went through with their guards. Like, this is just the guys that they have. And, you know, it's not getting better. It's not getting worse. Um, and so they've retooled that position group. And you have more bodies there. You have better depth there. And so if one guy isn't playing well or if this guy just doesn't fit the scheme, it's not working for him, you've got other options to try at that position. And that's probably, I think, the biggest thing for me that I take away at that position group is you've got options now. Um, I do feel like they've addressed some of their needs, especially in the transfer portal. I mean, you, you go out and – you fill your nickel spot, you fill out your edge, your pass rusher guy. Uh, you find a linebacker that can come in, come in and help you right away, which was a position group that was lacking depth, lacking production. Uh, and you add a cornerback to that position group as well. And I think one of the biggest things for me is you look at the 10 guys that they've landed and you can say seven of them, seven of them are definitively starters. And at their previous schools, you know, Justin Jacobs was a starter. Junior Angelau was a starter before he got hurt this year. Cornelius was a starter. Tez Johnson was a starter. Evan Williams was a starter. Jordan Birch was a starter. And Tessine Johnson was a starter. Um, maybe they didn't start every single game, but they started a majority of them to qualify as kind of like that full-time guy. Um, even Holden and Kerry Jackson. Yeah. Guys Hol that Hol Holden was a full-time starter, I think, at Bama this last year. Yeah. So, like, you're adding players with starting experience and some of these guys in the best conference in college football. Alabama is in the SEC. Last time I checked, South Carolina is in the SEC, and so is Ole Miss. And all three of those teams had really good years this season for their, for their programs, and you're adding starters from those teams. So I, I think you should be excited. I don't know if we can say, like, definitively – Oregon is going to be a college football playoff team. You, you know, you can't say that right now, but <clears throat> the, the the foundation and the pieces are, are, are put in so that this this team should be better next season. Now they just have to execute it. Yeah, well, and that's that's the other part. And, and I guess before we move on to the second question, I guess we should also acknowledge I, I liked the hires they made from a coaching perspective. Uh, we, you know, we talked about transfer portal additions, and that was kind of the way this question was framed as – how do we like the player acquisitions? I, I like both the coaches that they hired as well in terms of just like, and, and those were important position coaches. Um, you know, you know, you're number one on command on offense and kind of your number two in command on defense. Like they lost two of their more valuable assistant coaches this off season, two young guys, two guys that had, you know, long histories and ties with Dan, both of those guys move on. And I think they've gone out and replaced those coaches with, other young coaches that are exciting and, and bring something to the table. So I, I think just in general, just the, the additions they've made so far feel good. And I think outweigh 
the departures. Um, I want to make sure that doesn't get misconstrued. And I'm saying that Oregon, from a coaching perspective, has upgraded necessarily because both the coaches they lost also upgraded their own career positions. And, and you could kind of probably argue are, are two of the more up and coming coaches, you know, from their age range uh, out there. So I'm not saying that the additions are better, but I, I think certainly you feel really good about where they've landed and kind of how landing has shored some things up here. All right. Second question from at duck for quacks. Heading into spring camp, what position groups are you most excited to watch at practice? And then he goes, fingers crossed, you get to see more 11 on 11. I also share that, uh, <laughs> that hope. Whether it be the competition for the starting spot or the new guys at that position. Hashtag odds and audible. So the, the question is, what position groups are we most excited to watch? I have several, as you would imagine. Mm -hmm. And we should note, like, I have no clarity of what our practice access will look like when spring practice starts. Uh, we started to lose a little of that access during fall. I have no idea if that'll be the case again. But if we're assuming we get the same kind of access we got last spring, which might be an incorrect assumption, uh, then I guess I'll just focus and say I, I'm really curious to see how the defensive backs kind of shake out, and more specifically the safeties. Um, I, I look at that group and say, gosh, you've got so many guys with starting experience. Um, you know, and, and, and at some point, it's just there's almost too many players at that group for it to almost work, which is a weird way of saying it. But I look at it and think, like, there's going to have to be a couple guys who either transfer out or just accept that they're going to be backups who haven't been backups in previous seasons. And Steve Stevens has started essentially the last two seasons. Jamal Hill has been a starter for three seasons. Brian Addison played a ton of snaps and was, according to PFF, your second best defensive player. Now, I don't know uh, if we all agree with that, but certainly was somebody who was a positive contributor. And then you bring in Taishim Johnson and you bring in Evan Williams, who I did my say to the safety position kind of depth chart prediction. I, I have both those guys in my starting too deep right now. So there are several veteran safeties who played big roles on last year's team who remain with the team who are going into spring fighting for the positions that they had this past season. So I think that's what's going to be really fascinating for me is what is the approach of Jamal Hill and Steve Stevens and Brian Addison now that there's enhanced competition for their starting roles, right? A year ago, they had to fight for it, and they ended up winning their jobs. And guess what? I don't think safety play was very high on anyone's list of, of performers this past season. I don't think safety was a strength for this defense. In fact, along with inside linebacker, I'd argue it was probably those are probably the two biggest weaknesses. The fact that they went out and added players who are, as Matt kind of outlined, starters, whether it be in the SEC, the Mountain West, but that kind of caliber of player to challenge these guys, I think it's going to be fascinating to see how they hold up. And then the flip side kind of goes back to the first question is, do we see a guy or two from that group transfer? Whether, you know, I mean, like, are, are there guys that look up and say, gosh, I was working with the ones all of last year and now I'm with the twos. What do I want to do? I have one more year of eligibility. Because that's also the thing that ties together that, that trio I mentioned with Hill, Stevens, and Addison, where, where all three of them are in their final years of eligibility. And it comes down to these are fifth and sixth year guys. Do they want to sit on the bench at Oregon if they don't win their starting jobs or do they want to look around? So I think that's going to be, for me, the biggest kind of group I'm, I'm most cl closely watching. I wonder if those guys already like made that assumption though, where 
Yeah, they might be on the bench for their final year at Oregon, but that's just kind of where they're used to because they they can see the additions that Oregon is bringing in. I mean, Oregon was seven hours away from landing a five-star safety in Peyton Boeing as well. So Bowen, excuse me. Um, so I, I just kind of wonder if, uh, if they're kind of content with that where even though like, I don't know, like, like Stevens and Addison were both competing for the number one spot and then neither of them got it with, with, uh, with uh, Bennett Williams and Jamal Hill um, and taking that starting safety spot. I know Steve Stevens did start. I know Eric, I could see you looking at me. Well, I was just um, perplexed by the guy. Yeah, started for most of the, but I, I mean, for for spring camp, it's such a big difference between what it's going to be for fall too. Um, you know, we uh, Eric, you and I, every time we went to eleven on eleven and or practice during spring, it was always uh, BA and, and Triquest Bridges at safety, and then that never came to be. Um, I just I'm interested to watch that safety room to get to the question. I'm interested to watch it. I just um, I just have a really hard time seeing some of the guys who came back being the, the starters next season. And I I, I, I kind of wondered in the back of my head, like, why is it are they coming back? Because I just feel like Oregon is going to add there because, like, you finished your your statement with uh, safety was not the best best played position last season. There were moments where it was good. But overall, I, I don't think anybody would really take it over again. Like, that was a clear, clear upgrade for the coaching staff that they needed to make. So, anyways, um, competition, position groups, I'm looking at slot receiver. I think that's going to be the biggest competition I see on offense. Um, maybe one of the tackle positions, whether it's a Johnny Cornelius or Josh Connerly starting a left tackle. To me, I'd like Connerly. Uh, Cornelius, I just want to watch and see what he looks like. Same with Junior Aguilau, um, just to see what he looks like coming off of an injury. Um, excited to see Jordan Birch. Uh, I want to see what Treshawn Holden looks like in this offense. Um, overall, I want to see what the offense looks like under Will Stein. And then, again, this is barring that we are able to see 11-on-11 11 11 competition, which – who knows? Maybe we do. Maybe we don't. Um, Dan, if you're listening, I hope you allow us to watch some some 11 on 11. Uh, Nate Kruger, if you're listening, uh, I hope you, you mentioned it to Dan that we should watch some 11 on 11. But uh, yeah, I think slot receiver is my number one right now. Uh, I really think the Tez Johnson and Chris Hudson competition is going to be fun. Um, depending on who, who wins that job, there might be someone who hits the portal from that overall slot position. Um, which I could see happening, but uh, both guys are really uh, have, have a lot of competition and a lot of um, a lot of success, even at Troy and at Oregon. Um, Hudson was Oregon's third leading receiver last season, I think it's so. Tez was one of the, the best rated receivers by PFF and put up just ungodly stats at Troy last year. So I think that'll be a good competition. I just I can't tell you who's going to win now. Um, but I'm just excited to see both of those guys. And I'm excited to watch Tez Johnson in person because of the numbers he put out at Troy. 38 players are currently committed to Oregon in the 2023 recruiting class. Uh, almost mm -hmm. half the team. So this feels like a blanket answer, but I'm excited to just see like half the team for the first time. Um, that's pretty wild to think about. And if we do get better access for spring football, which historically has been the case um, under previous coaches, landing included, um, I would think we glean a lot. And so, like, it, it, I, I feel bad. You guys, you know, like I said, I said a lot. And some of the stuff I've said, I would say. So 
not going to rehash that. So I'm just going like blanket. Like half the team is going to be new. And just seeing how that all fits in and how the leadership fits in. And I think one of the storylines that's not been talked a lot about, uh, I can't speak this morning, um, is the fact that like when a, when a basketball team turns over half its roster, you, you're like, oh, that's a big amount. But it's like, well, there's still like six guys here. Like it's only six people. It's six, six and six. Like you, you, you can look at the leadership and, hey, this is how we do warm-ups. This is how the routine is. This is what we do. Um, work on this thing. You know, you get that peer-to-peer leadership still. When Even when, even when like, 70% of a basketball roster is turned over because it's only, like, seven or eight, nine guys. When half your roster is turned over for football, when, and when you say that, 40 dudes, like, just the logistics of operating a practice or player run practices or, you know, leadership capabilities, like the returners are going to have a lot of pressure on themselves to set the stage and set the table for the new guys to, to know and understand, like, this is how we do things. This is what we do. This is how this practice works. This is what this drill does. Like it's going to be rough. I think in, in you know, first three or four days of spring football with that many new players. Yeah, I was just realizing we are going to be – at some point during spring camp, we'll be riding the, oh, man, it's just tough to get these practices run the way we want. There's so many new guys, blah, 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 blah. There's going to be – or you know, maybe they won't come out and say that, but that will be at least a line of questioning to Dan. of like, Oh, how's – what's just the execution and practice like with half the guys being new players? That's fair. Uh, just one last one that dawned on me as we were kind of wrapping. Uh, I think the offensive guard position stuff could be kind of intriguing mm-hmm. to follow to with – with Harper and Jones and Angelau kind of competing for the two spots. We kind of touched on that one um, earlier this week, I think. I can't recall. Oh, it was in our position rundown pod on Monday. Uh, just <clears> another one that I'll be kind of curious to see how that shakes down. Because I, I have senses in my head of what the offensive line left to right looks like. I think a lot of other people that are kind of also in the industry that I've to- spoken with have had a little different opinion. So I'll be just kind of curious to see how all of it fits together and, and, and kind of where everybody lands. I think that's the big thing on the offensive line. I think we have a, a really good idea of who the six guys you could start feel like they will be. It's just, okay, where do they all fit together? And, you know, what's the right combination? So I think that's another one to kind of monitor. Uh, third one from at Ross underscore Maselich. With the additions of Johnson and Williams, does that all but confirm Jeffrey Boss remains at inside linebacker, or does he move back to strong or free safety due to the additions of Jacobs and the play of Keith Brown in the bowl game? Hashtag Ots and Audibles. Well, we floated the Boss moving thing a while ago. I don't see it uh, at all anymore. You know, it, it was interesting doing the position exercise, just kind of running through all the positions this this past week. You really get a sense for, like, gosh, they have next to no experience inside linebackers is just not a lot of bodies and boy do they have a lot of experienced safeties so i don't really see the value of moving Basta, who's one of your two inside linebackers with really any meaningful experience that's returning um, and you of course add justin jacobs into the conversation who's very much contending to start like i just don't see why you would do that and then from a fit perspective i I know we've been really high on Bob. I mean, he was recruited to play safety and nickel. Mm-hmm. I, I hope I'm not being too critical because I feel like I probably am one of the people who's most critical of Boss. I just don't know if 
some of the things that were shortcomings at linebackers aren't going to be shortcomings when he's playing safe. It's going to be even worse. I just think you're putting a guy who's had a hard time making open field tackles in positions where he's going to have to make more open, open field, field tackles. tackles. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I would be skeptical of that. I think Boss is sticking out at linebacker because, again, I think they have seven scholarship inside linebackers right now, and they have, I believe it's 11 scholarship safeties or 10, if, if, if you, I, 10 or 11. It was, it, it's 10 because J.J. Greenfield is, is not in scholarship. Yeah, There were 11 guys that mattered when I was doing the exercise, but I think just 10 who are yeah. on scholarship. So, like, I don't see what the benefit would necessarily be of moving Boston to that group personally. But uh, open to anything, expecting that that's not a thing we see. Yeah. Uh, Ross, thank you for the question, but no. Um, if if Basta were to have moved back to a safety, it would have been last spring ball with Dan first being here and seeing that, oh, this guy's not fit to play linebacker. Um, they went the entire season with Jeffrey Basta, basically the entire season, as their starting linebacker next to Noah Sewell. Um, mostly because Justin Flo did not pan out and was injured and then never really got back to playing at a high level of college football. Um, but to Eric's point, yeah, it's just everything that he struggled with last season and, and coverage and making open field tackles. That, that's exactly what a nickel safety does. He drops into coverage or covers a guy one-on-one -on -one down the field um, and makes open field tackles. That's why Bennett Williams, even though he had his bad games, a lot of people liked him, including me, where he could go up and hit somebody in the open field and make a tackle. Um, yeah, there were games where he missed a couple of those, but um, – that was that was Bossa a lot in terms of missed tackles in the open field. He just couldn't he just couldn't wrap up and moving him to free safety would be something where he'd have to do that on a more game to game, play to play basis. Um and they certainly aren't moving him to safety because of Keith Brown. I, I this is something where I'm not surprised. We talked about this before the bowl game, specifically me, where people get um overjoyed and excited about a young prospect and I was picking Devin Jackson to be that guy for me. Um, it turned out to be Keith Brown because he did really well in the bowl game. It's one game. I mean, I we gave the the red flag warning of, hey, don't get too lost into the bowl game performance because it is one game. Um, Keith Brown, I'm sure, will have a nice career at Oregon, and I'm sure he could do something where he turns into an actual starter this upcoming season. But we have to see it at, on, a, on a full game-to-game -game basis, a full season basis, we have to see it in spring camp where he's the starting linebacker with Justin Jacobs or maybe it's Jeffrey Bossa. We have to see it game one against Portland State where he's the starting Mike or Mac linebacker. Um, I'm not ready to, to fully move anybody out of the linebacking room because of Keith Brown's emergence because we've seen, you know, 48 minutes of Keith Brown's emergence. So um, that's just that. That's just a, a PSA, a public service announcement for, for those who are still on the Keith Brown train, which I don't blame you for. He played really well in the Holiday Bowl, but uh, we just got to see it more often than not. I think Boss stays at linebacker. I mean, I, I also don't even know if he's best suited for safety. Like, I, I think that was the plan coming in, but just watching him – in coverage his freshman year and then watching him in coverage this season, he took a dip down. And I I just don't feel like it would be at his best position playing him at safety. He would I think he would get abused sometimes. Maybe abuse isn't the right word, but teams would pick on him with his lack of speed at that at that spot. Yeah, especially if we're talking strong or free. 
like yeah. uh, he just doesn't have the i don't think he has and, and he wasn't even working at those positions before mo- moving to linebacker like he was either nickel or no so. yeah it's, it's a sorry ross it's a it's a no from from these guys over here at the odds not levels podcast um and i'll also acknowledge that was something we kind of discussed earlier gosh this month or late last month whenever was just like, ah, oh, where does he fit? I think these additions make yeah. it pretty darn we clear. Got, he's staying there. We get asked about it a lot, surprisingly. Yeah. Well, because I think people are, I think people still have a lot of hope for Boston, which I do as well. I, mean, I, I think he's. I'm one of his biggest fans. Like, I think he's really, he can be really good. It's just that he didn't have a good year this past season. Yeah, I just think it's, I just think it's clear that he's a linebacker now. Like, if he was going to be a safety, they would have immediately moved him after. After his freshman season, where they they suddenly they had more depth at linebacker, they brought guys in. It's like, okay, Jeffrey, we do not need you to play linebacker anymore. Please go back to safety. But um, Dan and company must see him see something at linebacker, just like Mario and company did. So I think it's I think it's pretty pretty clear at this point that he's going to be a linebacker for the foreseeable future. All right, we're gonna wrap up our mailbag portion with a men's basketball question. So this is going right to you, Matt, um, from. And this is, by the way, fresh off a 75-69, I think I got the score right, win over nice. Colorado on Thursday, uh, which was a little more stressful than it needed to be for those who were <laughs> watching from home and probably those who were at Matthew Knight as well. Matt can get to that if he wants to. Um, but from at March Madness 83 next season, men's hoops brings in two five-stars. They're both talented, but they're both role players. Shellstad is an alpha, but not necessarily in year one. Should fans be pessimistic about next year if Oregon doesn't go all in to secure one of the top transfer guards? Hashtag Otsnotables. Matt, what say you? Um, how do we define role players? Because I think Kwame Evans and Mookie Cook have good chances of starting next season. Um, and a, a lot of that also depends upon what some un- upperclassmen at Oregon do. Um, and you'd be like, well, what, what do you mean? Dante could come back, and there's a legitimate possibility that that happens. Um, I don't know if it's one way or the other right now that he stays or goes. I, I truly think it's like a 50-50 deal right now for for Oregon. They're trying like heck to get him to come back. Um, maybe this latest injury changes that perspective from Dante's perspective, but if he comes back – you know, he's your alpha of this team. I think it's pretty clear this season that when Dante plays well, Oregon plays well. Um, what does Quincy Guerrier do? He, he could go to Oregon again for a fifth season because he's got the COVID year. He could transfer out um, and go to another school for a third time. Same question for Rivaldo Sores, and same question uh, that you have for um, Kuznard. Um, I, I think in an ideal scenario for Oregon, you, you get all three of those guys to come back. And in that case, then yeah, like Kwame Evans, KJ Evans, and Mookie Cook, finding a starting spot for both of them is going to be hard. Finding a spot for one of them will still be hard. Um, so yeah, then they become role players. But that means your bench just gets significantly better. The NBA scouts love both players. We should note that Kwame does have a little bit of a reputation as, you know, wax the killer instinct motor type air quotes that we've heard about Kalel. I don't know if it's as 
prominent as Kalel was, but it's out there. Um, and we should also note, and, you know, Mookie's not like this pure shooter either, but he's a jack of all trades that can play any position essentially for you. I do think Jackson Shellstead could be a day one starter for Oregon as a true freshman. Um, he's very, very good. And the problem for Oregon though is that they are trading Will Richardson's, you know, graduation moving on for a, a true freshman. You still have the issue of even if Kuznard comes back and Bartholomew comes back, you still need another ball handler and you still need probably another shooter on this team. I, I think the idea that Oregon should be a favorite to win the, the league would be a false narrative. I think the expectation that they'd be a tournament team would be very true, very fair. Um, can this team be one that wins the league? Yes. Can this be one that gets to the second week of the NCAA tournament? Yes. But some of that is going to be dependent upon what they do in the offseason via the transfer portal, or maybe they add another piece. Maybe it's Bronny James, um, another kind of combo guard, a guy that's a really good shooter. Um and seems to have taken a next step in his development. Um, and, you know, something else that could happen is Stoyakovich, you know, he's currently signed with Stanford. Jared Haas is probably going to get fired. And does he open things back up again? Oregon was a finalist there. Really good three-point shooter. That's exactly what Oregon needs. Um, maybe, maybe it fits in there. But I, I think you look at this program and say they should be a tournament team. You can't say yet that that – that they should be a, the favorite or a favorite to win the league. Um, but the ceiling is there for that. I, I, I think you should be excited, but I think you should have like a reserve judgment of until this team kind of shows out and proves it on the court, it's unrealized potential and you don't want to put too much stock into it. That feels I like find- the trend, right? With these teams with under Dana has just been a lot of five-star talent and expectations get excited and risen. And, and then it's just, doesn't quite match up. It seems to be the recent trend. Yeah, yeah. I thought I thought that this Mar- for the question from March Madness '83. I thought it was an interesting question. Should fans be pessimistic about next year if Oregon doesn't go all in and secure one of the top guards? Yeah, there's a chance they they should be because uh, I mean it's kind of what has prohibited this team at least this year uh, taking off. They don't have any ball handlers outside of Will Richardson or didn't for most of the season because of injuries. And you see how important that is. And it's going to be even more important with Kwame Evans and Mookie Cook. Um, Jackson Shellstad is a ball handler and guy who can move the ball around. But again, he's going into his first year in college. Um, I think like Matt said, I think he can be a big time contributor. Um, but even if Oregon were to land Bronny James, he's another guy like Mookie, like Kwame, where they're not going to do great with the ball in their hands. They're going to need ball movement. Um, and again, that's what a Dana Altman team is. Uh, they need ball movement. They need quick quick decision-making processes. They need guys who can um, find the open man in the corner. They need shooting. Um, so you have all these guys that, that could come back in Nafale and Dante, Nafale Dante and Quincy Gurrier, Jermaine and Keyshawn. But, um, you know, I, I know that it's a possibility for Dante to come back. I just think that's if you're Dante, like this is the best he's played. This is the best he's looked. Um, if I were him, I'd, unless the NIL makes it such a such a big difference, um, you know, I could see him being a second round draft pick. 
just because of how well he's played. But he's also going into his, uh, I think next year is going to be what, his final year of eligibility, Matt, if he decides yeah. to come back. Yeah. Um, he's, yeah, I mean, he's showing everything that he can this year. He looks, he looks amazing this season in terms of his health. Um, but, you know, it, it depends if those guys come back. But if you're Oregon, you got to go find somebody who can control the ball. You got to find a true point guard. If all, if those guys don't come back, if Kuznar and Bartholomew come back, you could you could be in a good position um, with Shellstad and with Ferrani as, as kind of a combo guard, a six foot four combo guard. But you need to find somebody in the transfer portal if those guys leave, because these five stars are going to need help. Um, Dana Altman's five stars seem, other than like Troy Brown seem to be different than other other teams' five stars in terms of they're not the immediate offensive need. They don't immediately fill a, bull, a void offensively. And bowl, don't get me wrong about bowl. But um, they're, they're what a Dana Altman team is full of. It's like six, seven, six, eight wings who can defend all three levels, who can occasionally shoot, but who play hard-nosed defense. And, you know, you don't really get that from Cloyle Ware this season. But um, at points when he's locked in, you see it. Um, I just think that Mookie and Kwame, and if they land Ronnie James, um, those guys are going to need a lot of help on the on the perimeter. They're going to need ball handlers. They're going to need an offense to to get them set up and to get them going. Because I don't think those guys, other than other than a little bit of Ronnie and mostly Jackson Shellstead, I don't think those guys can really create their own bucket. So I think it's an interesting question that's brought up. That's um, brought up really early, like way before this season ends and way before next season begins. But I think it's an interesting question. With with Dante, he's only 21, and and the thing to remember is he reclassified into the 2019 class to join the Ducks that season early. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's ahead of schedule by one year for where he normally is at. So it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility for him to come out and say, like, yeah, like, technically I should be a senior next year anyway, so let's let's do it. Um, but I think the I injury just, concerns are up there. Yeah. He's playing at his best. Is is he gonna be better? Not you know significantly better next season than than this year. I I don't know. Does his family need the money too? We don't know that answer either. Like, and I no, I just wonder. Big thing. Yeah, I just wonder. Like, what else does he have to prove at this level? Like. He's doing really well when he when he gets the ball when he has um, when he's on he's on he's one of the better setters probably in the country but definitely in the Pac-12. Um, I just wonder what else he has to prove to NBA level guys because they they've seen it all during his time here. I I think the answer to that is Dana talked about it on on Tuesday a little bit is he's now getting double and triple teamed and mm-hmm. every every time he gets the ball and. How does he handle that? And the games that he has three or more turnovers, they're one and six on the season. Um, and the games when he keeps his turnovers down, um, they're obviously, I think they're 10 and one before that, or nine and one. I can't remember what the record it was before the last night. But um, I think that's where the improvement needs to come. That's where he can show is like he's consistently getting double teamed and he's had his moments where he's handled it very well, but he's also had his moments like at Stanford a couple weeks ago, a week ago, he didn't handle it well um, he, against ASU at home. He didn't handle it well. Four turnovers in that game. Uh, UCLA, another game in which they probably 
could have won that game. I don't, I don't know if I'm going to say should, but they could have won that game. He had five. They, UCLA just doubled him, and he, he, he couldn't handle it. And you, I think that's the, the growth that you're looking for is can you become – comfortable playing with the double teams because you're going to get that in the nba you're going to you know until you show you 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 can um so that's where i would i would i would say like if he comes back that's where he works on is being able to handle the attention that comes with the reputation of of being a dominant low post score because you're right jared like he owns the school record for single season field goal percentage at like seven sixty five percent um, and he's at 62% right now. Like he's on pace to have the number one and the number four um, best field goal percentage in a single season uh, twice. Like that's pretty darn impressive from a scoring standpoint. Um, but but that, I guess like the transition of, away from Dante, I wanted to mention this comment is like both Eric covers the women, Jared's been both. Um, I've watched a good chunk of the women's games and I think – the biggest thing that Oregon's missing on the men's side right now is just the skill of the game. Like Oregon's athletes are on the men's side are phenomenal. Um, they've, they have got great athleticism at every position, but just watching the women play, you see the skill, you see the, the IQ. Dana talked about that on Tuesday too. Like this team just sometimes forgets what they're doing on the court. And I watch the women and appreciate just how skilled they are and how well they, they play together. Um, the, the, the passes are crisp. There's no thinking. They just immediately swing it to, you know, one more spot, one more spot, and you get a wide open three. You don't see that happen very often with the men's side. Um, I, I think, and that's probably the area you're trying to improve the most from the men's perspective is, can you add more skill? And I don't know if it's going to come through the high school ranks. It's going to have to come through the JUCO guys or the or the the college transfer guys. I think I think that's I think the deficiencies of each program right now are inverted. Yeah. Or, or Oregon on the women's side just can't defend anybody, um, and has had mm-hmm. and and it has had a really hard time standing up to pressure as well. But uh, in terms of Full court press. I don't know how much women's basketball talk we want to do because I've seen I've seen the comments on the YouTube about when we talk women's basketball and it's it's just it doesn't capture people's interest, uh, which is too bad because I would of course devote ample time talking about it. Um, but no, I, I I think you're onto something there in terms of Matt of kind of what the issues because neither program's playing super well right now. But you've got one team in Oregon on the women's side that, gosh, offensively they look really really good sometimes. And, and of course there are times mm-hmm. where it's it's not as good, and I think the last couple of games, Grace Van Sluten has a, had a really hard time, and, and that's been a big part of kind of just a, a, more, a more global issues they've had offensively of just not having a consistent interior presence. But, gosh, their defense has been awful the last couple of games during this kind of losing stretch. And on the men's side, I'm not saying the defense has been great, but that's just kind of a built-in is they have the length and athleticism to, to stack up and hold up, whereas I, the women's the, the way the roster is constructed, they just don't have a lot of big wings to to hold up against other big wings, and so you've got a lot of smaller guards who are quick but not physically, uh, you know, developed enough to to hold up. And and then obviously inside, they've got I think one of the better interior presences in Che, but she's such a project on offense that you can't play her 
32, 33 minutes. And I don't know from an endurance perspective, mm -hmm. she's up for doing that either. So there's our women's basketball top because I'm sure we want to transition now, maybe take a break and go to the to the comments. Yeah, let's take a let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll dive into uh, the comments on the chat section of the stream. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. All right, welcome back to the Odds and Audibles podcast. Um, let's dive into this one. I thought this was interesting. I remember at the beginning of the show seeing this. We've seen DeBoer, Dickert, and Heupel, and others recently received contracts extensions. Those are first and second year head coaches. When do you see Oregon extend Dan Lanning? I think the interesting part of all of those three guys is – they didn't inherit a program like Lanning did that played for the conference championship the year before. Um, I think Lanning probably deserves a raise, but I also think like he kind of did what was expected of him this season. All three of those schools, their head coaches far exceeded um, year one, year two expectations for their programs for where they were at when they joined the program. Uh, I was exactly where I was going to go. It, you just look at, I mean, Washington won, what, four games in 2021? They won 11, yeah. 10, 11? Was it 11? They won 11 games. Last year. 11, 11 yeah. and three. Really impressive. I mean, that's a seven-game turnaround. You would, that makes sense that you would extend that coach and try to keep him around for the long haul. Uh, Dickert, I think they won seven games, which at Washington State is really like pretty that's, good. That's, that's pretty darn good, especially considering, by the way, that they were the worst of the Pacific Northwest teams, right? I mean, all four Pacific Northwest teams were bowl eligible this year. Um, and I'm understanding of that. And Hypo at Tennessee stands for itself. That was a breakout season here where for a while it felt like they might be, well, until they played Georgia and proved they weren't, that they might be the best team in the country. There was a, that, was a, that was a national... Yes talking point until they played the real number one team in the country and were beaten pretty soundly. So it makes sense that all those coaches, as Matt said, elevated their programs, took it to another level. DeBoer and Heupel in particular, uh, that adds up. And if you look at Oregon with Lanning, depending upon how you want to look at the season, and I want to make it very clear, I'm a huge fan of Dan Lanning. I think he's done an awesome job and I'm really optimistic about the direction it's going because of what they've done this offseason. But just based purely on the success of 2022, 10-win season, didn't play for a conference championship, played in, by their standard, a lesser tier bowl. Nothing that he did this year screams you've got to extend him, right? And you think about Mario, who I believe was extended 
twice during his four years here, or, or at least re renegotiated his deal. Both mm -hmm. of those, I think, came after conference championships winning seasons in 19 and 20. Okay. And so you reach a certain threshold, you attain more financial compensation, whatever else it is you negotiate for in your contract. So um, I think once Lanning shows he can live up to what the expectations have been in terms of winning a conference championship and, and elevating and like if Oregon wins 11 games and wins a Rose Bowl next year, he's got, he deserves a contract extension. I don't think there's any question. If Oregon makes a college yeah. football playoff at yep. any point, he's going to get a contract extension. But I think winning 10 games, not playing for a conference championship and winning a Holiday Bowl, if you do that over and over again, you're not on the hot seat at all. Like Oregon, Oregon fans, I hope, don't get to the sense of, gosh, we're only winning 10 games uh, year after year. This is a, a disaster. We've got to make a change. But if, if, he, if he isn't winning conference championships and playing for Rose Bowls, like at a certain point, you do get frustrated. So that's, that's to me what would – and like I don't even know if – I'm not going to say Dan would sit there and go, I don't want a contract negotiation. I don't want more money. But I think he would even probably be honest and be like, like we did a lot of great things this last year, but I'm not sure I did enough in year one to, to deserve uh, you know, a reworking of these deals. Because you don't just arbitrarily make, you know, extend coaches uh, no. like that. And, and you have to you know, accomplish something significant. And I think landing, at least on the field this last year, while the season had some real highs, ultimately you look at it and go, it's not a failure by any means, but I don't think it's a rousing success either. Um, yeah, I mean, Dan's going to get an extension eventually. The other thing that, that goes into this is Dan's already making or was was making significantly more than all the other coaches on that list in his first season. Dan, his starting salary was $4.85 million. Um, I think he had an incentive hit as well. I don't remember it off the top of my head. So he made more than that. The board was making three point. He made two hundred thousand for the bull. Sure, so it's five million at yeah, this point. Dan, in his first season ever as a head coach, um, DeBoer was making like three point four. Dickert was making two point seven. So Dan was basically making double what Dickert was making, and Heupel just got uh, five million dollar uh, add-on. So he's making nine million dollars a year. So he was making four earlier. Um, so that's I think that plays into it too. Is that Dan is already pretty well paid. Um, but I agree with both of you guys where, you know, he needs more experience and I don't mean that in a negative way. Um, but again, the college coaches prices at this point, you're getting into like the, the $10 million range, the eight to $10 million range for the elite coaches. I mean, Mel Tucker, elite coach, eight and a half million dollars a year, 9.2. Um, no, not at all. I said it in that funny voice. Um, Mario Cristobal, 10 years, $80 million. Um, but he at least had – well, he got yeah. more from Miami, but that was Oregon's offer. But he had a track record. He had two Pac-12 championships under his belt. He had a third – three straight that they competed in. Um, once Dan puts together one or two of those, I mean, with what he's doing off the field and, frankly, what he's doing on the field as well, uh, he'll be fine. Like, I'm not, not worried for Dan. Uh, if, if Oregon doesn't pay him, which I hope that they do because – do like the trajectory that Oregon's going to. Um, someone will. Someone will pay Dan hand over fist and say, hey, Dan, here's eight and a half, nine million dollars a year. And whether it's Oregon or not, like someone's going to pay him because he's going to have success. Um, it'll come. I, I, I don't think there's any reason to worry about if he's going to get a contract extension. Although, Eric, I know you mentioned like Oregon fans wouldn't be calling for the hot seat if they get nine and 10 wins every year. 
I said 10. I isn't said that 10. exactly, I isn't that exactly what Michigan did? <laughs> What's that? I, I, I said 10 wins, but yeah, I, I understand. Right, right, right. But isn't, isn't that exactly what Michigan did with Harbaugh? Where they get oh, like still, nine or 10 wins still, every single has, year, but they, they just lose to Ohio State and then um, they call for him to be fired and then he ends up restru- restructuring his deal to get like his pay in half. So it wouldn't put I wouldn't put Oregon fans out of that notion. Oh, uh, absolutely. I, 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 yeah, I, I want to be clear. I, I I'm not saying irrational Oregon fans wouldn't be calling for. I think, but just like the the average front of the mill rational if, fan. If Dan keeps losing to Washington or Oregon yeah. State, or, yes, yeah, like Harbaugh does every year, except for the last two. Yeah, except for the last two years where they played for the College Football Playoff and he's he's salvaged things. But yeah, no, I I like that, that. That's fair. All right, Matt, do we have another one? From Nick Flowers, we've seen so many new players come in who are obscenely high caliber, starting caliber. How realistic would it be for Dan to put all this talent together and, for example, get us to a college football playoff? I'm assuming he's talking about 2023. Um, Seems like it. First and foremost, Dan will face probably the toughest Pac-12 that we've seen in six, seven years. Maybe more. I don't know. Like more than that, I think. Yeah. Like I, I just kind of picked like a long number and yeah. threw it out. Like it it really is gonna take us a long time, I think, to find a year in which going in on paper, the Pac twelve has has been tougher. So I, I think that's the first hurdle that you have to get through um for for Dan. It's gonna make it hard for for Oregon, it's gonna make it hard for Washington, USC. Utah, like to get to the playoffs, if you get out of that Pac-12 and you make the playoffs, you are going to be really good because it's not just us who are in the Pac-12 saying that. We had Hummer on, we've had Marcelo on, and both those guys said that they think the league could be maybe the best league top to bottom next season. Um, They're maybe not going to have like the best team at number one, but just the overall depth is going to be the best in the in the country maybe. So I think that's the biggest hurdle. Is the talent going to be there? Absolutely. Like pieces, pieces are there. The ball bounces your way correctly. You get a couple lucky bounces. Yeah, I think I could see this team get to the playoff. I don't expect it, but I I think it's something that you have to discuss because they don't play a juggernaut like Georgia and non-con. Texas Tech will be a hard game. It'll be a tough environment, but that's a winnable game. That's a game I think all three of us go in saying like, if Oregon and Texas Tech play their best football, Oregon's probably the better team. Um, and then they play in a neutral site, like it's Oregon. Um, getting through conference play is going to be hard. But should it should it be the expectation? No. Can it happen? Yes. That's that's I guess that's how I answer that question. Yeah, I think if we're looking, so I I, I anticipate the offense is going to feel a lot like what this last year's offense was. And that might be wrong. You know, I saw a question actually in the mailbag, which we didn't use, which was, I thought kind of a good thought, interesting thought exercise of, are, are we setting the expectations almost too high for Will Stein in his first year as play caller Oregon, because Oregon's offense was so darn good under Dillingham last year. Um, I don't know if I totally agree with that, but I think we are to a certain degree. And I'm admitting kind of fault right now, as I'm going through this exercise of saying, I think Oregon's offense will be, on par with what it was last year of it is no given that under a new offensive coordinator, everything fires in all cylinder 
day one and looks awesome right. the whole year. Like I think Dillingham experience even against Georgia, I know that they didn't score any points there. It wasn't super impressive. People had questions, but boy, by the time they got to BYU and then into the conference season, people were kind of picked up on, boy, he's, he's really good at this. I don't know if it'll be uh, uh, quite as seamless uh, with Stein. So, you know, that there's one component there. The defense, I think this is what's Nick's getting at, talking about the higher caliber of players. I do think the defense should be better because it can't really get worse if you think about it, right? In terms of the talent that they brought in, in terms of just experience that talent will have playing in this defense. So I, I anticipate uh, the team is a little better this year, but to Matt's point, and I think the point that we've had a couple of national people on who've talked about it was, and I think Chris Hummer said it straight up on Wednesday because Matt asked a question about, like, is this the year the, the Pac-12 breaks through with the college football playoff team? And his point was the, team, the, the conference is so loaded, it just probably going to cannibalize itself like it seems difficult when there are four to five teams that are considered you know real conference championship contenders that there aren't going to be enough hiccups or i should say that they're yeah that a team's just going to make it through unscathed i think that's that's a tough ask and you look at oregon's schedule we've talked about it it's it's a i think a somewhat favorable schedule in certain areas but there are like legitimately four really tough conference games in there mm -hmm. so um yeah I, I i think I think it's realistic the team is better. I don't know how realistic it is that they get to a playoff. I just think that becomes the expectation this time of year, every year for, for Oregon fans, and I understand it because that should be the ultimate goal. Uh, I just think sometimes we set the goal almost a little bit higher than is, is rational, and then people get really frustrated because the season's a disappointment because they win 10 games every year. Um, so I like. do they have the talent to be a really upper echelon team? Sure. I just... We'll have to see it before I believe it, I guess, to a certain extent, too. Yeah, I think that's the ultimate message about this, is that, yeah, the college football playoff should be the expectation. Is it realistic? Sure. If things click right, I mean, it was realistic last year for a long time. Um, there's going to be ups and downs of every season. It just depends how Oregon can handle them. Um, last year's downs are, were really hard to handle because it was Bo Nix being injured. Um, last year's downs were Kenny Dillingham leaving at the end of the season, um, an injury to Chase Cota, the entire defense for multiple weeks during the season. Um, but overall, yeah, the talent together on this roster could be a college football playoff team. Would they win the national championship? I don't know. It's a couple teams down south that might have a say in that. Um, but here I am. Welcome to, to my corner of the world again. Uh, the Pac-12 needs to get rid of the damn nine-game conference schedule, for Pete's sake. They need to get rid of it. This would help Oregon. This would help the, the whole conference not cannibalize each other. For for maybe if the teams continue to be this good, that'd be great. Um, you know, I have my my wonders on how on if they'll be this good all the time. But again, an eight eight-game conference schedule gives Oregon, gives USC, gives Washington, gives Oregon State, gives Colorado in two years, according to Joel Klatt, um, gives those guys a break during the end of the season to not go and travel to Utah or USC or Oregon or all these other places that I just listened to. Um, that's the difference between making a college football playoff or not, because Georgia isn't traveling to Alabama in November 13th when they're 11 and one and so is Alabama. Um, those games just cannibalize each other. The SEC figured it out. They said, hey, we want two teams in the college football playoff as often as we can. Let's make it so our brand not only looks better, but is better on paper against other opponents. So 
this is a Pac-12 conference issue um, that I just wanted to get into really quickly. But to answer the question again, yes, it's 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 realistic. It's possible. Is it likely? Probably not. No, I'll just say that right now. No. Let's throw this one up here. Eric Johnson, uh, if we, as in Oregon, went 10-3 and three again this year, would that be considered a failure? Um, I don't know if it's if failure is the right word. If Oregon went 10-3, no. and three, I probably would be a little disappointed. But I would also have the caveat that, hey, the league is at its best. It's been in a very long time. It's going to make it hard. Like if you're 10-3 and three and your losses are to teams that are – in the playoff, in a New Year's Six Bowl, and another 10-win team, that's hard to, like, get disappointed about. You've played good teams, and you lost. It happens. But if, if mm-hmm. you've got, like, a – if you're 10-3 and three and in there, you've got a loss to, like, a 7-5 and five team and a 6-6 six and six team, then, yeah, that's disappointing. You didn't – you played down to your competition and lost. Yeah, no, I was just going to say not all 10-3 and three seasons are – Created equal, so I, I, there'd have to be a little bit more nuance to determine that. I think if it's ten and three with losses to Oregon State and Washington again, and they don't play for a conference championship, and they win a bowl of similar caliber, like if it's a, if it feels like it's almost a repeat of twenty twenty two, I think you're a little disappointed, um, mm-hmm. because you do bring back enough on offense to be really really dynamic, um, and also you just want to see a little bit of progress on the field. To certain, you know what I mean? And like, obviously you're not falling back any at 10 and three, but you also expect to see a little bit of improvement. So, uh, but if it's 10 and three and, it, and it's your losses are to uh, USC, Utah, Washington, I don't know, maybe Texas tech, let's say Texas tech, let's say they beat both their rivals and then they, they play and win the conference, you know, they win the conference championship go on and, and win a Rose Bowl, then sure, that's a that's not a disappointment at all. So um, it kind of depends on how you get to 10 and 3. But uh, I think I think if it's just a pure repeat of this past season, I wouldn't say it's a failure, but it, it isn't enough progress to be celebrated. But if you win, if you go 10 and 3 and, and that ends up being a conference championship and you win games over both your rivals, which are going to be tough games again, uh, I, I think you, you feel pretty decent about that and you, you should celebrate a season like that. Yeah, and I feel like we just went over this. It's not a disappointment. And like Eric said, all 10 and 3 seasons are not considered equal or created equal. Um, It's a tough schedule. I still think it's a tough schedule. I know they get all these games at home. I still feel like it's a hard one to have. Um, The Pac-12 is really good this upcoming season, at least on paper. Um, It's going to be difficult for them to finish anything but 9 or 10 and 3. I really think so. Um, For them to go and, like, I don't know, sweep the the conference or go 8 and 1 in the division, on the division in the Pac-12, um, I think it's going to be really difficult. I think it's going to be difficult for every team in the Pac-12 to try to do that. Um, there's a lot of offense. Uh, every quarterback that was good last season is coming back, and then you add DJ Uyunglele. Um, there's going to be no shortages of talent in the Pac-12. And thankfully for the transfer portal, that's how that happens. Um, that's a good side of the transfer portal. Don't let every, anybody tell you differently. Um, it's going to be really difficult for anybody to do better than 10-3, and 3, I think, in this upcoming Pac-12 season. So, yeah, it wouldn't be a disappointment. Um, I would get if we were disappointing in, I don't know, a couple of years ago when there's some real bottom dwellers in the in the in the conference where you have like an Arizona or 
maybe Washington State where they're like two and ten or whatever the case may be, where they're really poor. But you're not going to have that outside of Stanford this year. All right. Jared, this one's going right to you. I don't know if you saw it. Solf one question for Jared. Question. More wow. than likely. What's your outlook on Oregon baseball this year? Higher ceiling than last year, you think? Quick rundown. Uh, baseball did start doing their media availabilities. You had like four or five stories up this week on baseball. I guess give us the quick rundown of where this team is at. Sure thing. Um, let's see. Yesterday was the first practice of the season, or at least like the official season. They had fall baseball practices. Today is the first scrimmage, so I'll be doing that um, later today. But, yeah, overall, I mean, I think the team offensively, it's going to be a, a Mark Wasikowski team. Um, it's going to hit really well. It's not going to pitch really well. Um, Isaac Aon is uh, hurt and should miss a portion of the season. He was their Friday night guy, so that's a big, big loss to start the season. Um, there's other injuries that I cannot get into, but um, will soon enough turn out when the season starts on February 17th against Xavier for a three-game stretch. Um, offensively, they return Tanner Smith and Drew Cowley. Um, Gavin Grant, Colby Shade, uh, Jacob Walsh. They got a lot of guys, a lot of guys who can absolutely rake. Uh, I think it's going to be a really fun offensive season to watch. I think the team in general, if it's a nice day in Eugene and you want to watch an offensive explosion, you want to watch the fun parts of baseball, come on down to PK Park because it's going to be fun on that side of the ball. Pitching was uh, was kind of nightmarish at points last season. Uh, it, it It might be... I don't know. It might be worse this year just because they have to rely on some freshmen um, to do a lot of it. I think their bullpen should be better, but as long as they throw strikes, it could be a lot better than it was last year. Um, I plan on having Mark Wazikowski on this podcast at one point. I got to figure that out with uh, with uh, Todd Miles, our, our lovely SID for the baseball program. Um, so stay tuned for that. Yeah, I think, I think Oregon should compete. Uh, I think they should be a top four seed in the Pac-12, but pitching is going to be it's going to be something there's still three weeks before the season starts so i'll have more on that as the season comes up but as of right now it looks like the biggest question mark by far how how do we judge a successful season for baseball you feel like well they've made it to two regionals in a row now um 21 and 22 they hosted in 21 i would say a successful season is making it to another regional um i would say a very successful season is hosting a regional um i mean all of them everybody wants to go to omaha which is the college world series but um it's difficult and uh, when you don't have clear pitching advantages over any team or a lot of teams uh, it becomes even more difficult but i think a successful season this season would look similar to what it was last year um, I think they were 36 and 25. So anywhere, anywhere from 10 to 12 games over 500. All right. Um, trying to pursue the the chat, and I don't see anything else in here. I think it's time. We hit over an hour, just over an hour. Uh, is there anything you guys think that needs to be mentioned in this chat, or? Um, hmm. I mean, I'm going to look through here. Um, great. This is a great podcast. I, I don't really see yeah, anytime. I don't see a lot. There's this <laughs> oh, <thank you. laughs> from Brian. McKee. Yeah, I was, I was, I was messing with it earlier, Brian. Um, 
Jer Jer Brian of, says Jared is too concerned thing. with his hair. So, yeah. At least it's a nice, nice comment about the hair. It looks, and we should also say for those who are podcast listeners, uh, Brian also says, looks good, bro, with a smiley face. So, all, all the positivity. Thank you, Brian. We love positivity on this podcast. Yeah, I, 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 I don't think there's much else left. Uh, all right. Uh, we'll jump out. Thank you for submitting your questions. Thank you for watching the live stream. Thank you for listening on the podcast format. Uh, really appreciate it. We've seen tremendous growth. Um, people are staying around watching the videos for a really long time, which is tremendous as well. Um, until next week, when we'll start talking some recruiting signing day, the second signing day period is around mm -hmm. the corner. Um, that's to look forward to on the podcast next week. Um, but until then, you've been listening to the Odds and Audible's podcast. Talk to you later, folks. Peace. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You can now relive the best moments of the UEFA Champions League 24-7. The UEFA Champions League channel is a new 24-hour streaming channel serving non-stop goals, highlights, and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel streaming around the clock on Pluto TV and the CBS Sports app.